The Scuttlebutt is proud to welcome Millerstown Pick Apart, a self-service salvage yard where you can get parts you need for your car, truck, or van at very attractive prices because you do the work. Bring your own wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, sockets, jacks, drills, or whatever you need, except for torches, to wrestle out the parts you need from the vehicles in the yard. Millerstown Pick Apart was created 17 years ago to provide reasonably priced solutions for auto parts needs. Millerstown was one of the first you-pull-it type auto parts in the Pittsburgh area, and it is the perfect fit for those seeking discount auto parts to repair their own vehicles. Millerstown has a huge inventory of cars, which they purchase from individuals, towing companies, and auctions, and from its sister auto salvage recycling operation. For hours, directions, inventory, parts availability, and pricing, you can go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D, pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. I feel like we need a jingle for that. 724-224-4777. That's pickapartyard.com or call 724-224-4777. Thank you so much and on with the show. There's going to be hundreds of teenagers all across the United States strapped into their PS5, kicking our next enemy's butt by remote controlled tanks across the, you know, the paths of you know, all over the world. Well, you know, the parents will have to sign a waiver and they'll just be like, look, we don't, we don't want, we don't want Ryan. He's, he's mid thirties. He doesn't, he doesn't have the thumbs like you kids got. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, the director of programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Uh, we are in episode two of season four it's crazy. We're just pushing, pushing right on through. Uh, joining me as always are, are it's my all-star team here, uh, Ryan All and Catherine Guyon. Uh, if you guys would like to introduce yourselves, Ryan. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan. Happy to be here again for episode two of season four. Uh, excited to get into some scuttlebutt. <laughs> Sturt and sweet. <laughs> I don't love it. <laughs> Catherine. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Catherine. I'm glad that these two uh, crazy guys brought me along for season four. Um, and I'm putting on a little bit of my news lady hat today because uh, I got some questions about some of this scuttlebutt that uh, somebody's going to have to explain to the civilian here. Well, what we're referring to is that we haven't done uh, an episode of just scuttlebutt in quite a while. Uh, we sort of got into like involved in, in in the guests that we were having on, so we sort of let go of our segment that was reviewing military news, and we thought, you know, it's time that we sort of update everyone on some of the headlines that we had talked about way back in season one, even season one, episode one. So as always, if you've been enjoying the scuttlebutt or if you're new to us, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell, leave us a review, uh, or connect with me at Sean at veteransbreakfastclub.org. So yeah, going back to season one, episode one, if you go back and listen to that, you'll hear me talk about the, what I said was, I think the Bonham Richard, um, which I've learned a lot since then. The Bonham Richard, uh, as it's somewhat pronounced. I'm probably still slaughtering it. But anyway, an update from Task and Purpose, and you can find this anywhere really on the internet, is that the Navy has charged a seaman apprentice and member of the crew with starting the fire in July 2020 that destroyed the Bonham Richard, an amphibious assault ship that became engulfed by an inferno for days as the ship was docked in San Diego, California. 
The service announced it was charging the sailor, quote, in response to evidence found during the criminal investigation into the fire, which caused so much damage to the ship that the Navy decided to scrap it altogether. The service concluded in November 2020 that it would take at least five years and more than $3 billion to get the ship back up and running. It would have cost more than $1 billion to modify the ship to a different type of vessel, such as a hospital ship. Uh, quote, evidence collected during the investigation is sufficient to direct a preliminary hearing in accordance with due process under the military justice system, said Commander Sean Robertson, a Navy spokesman. The sailor has been charged under the Uniform Code of Military Justice with allegedly violating Article 110, improper hazarding of a vessel, and Article 126, aggravated arson. The fire began in the lower vehicle storage area of the 844-foot ship at around 8.30 a.m. on July 12, 2020, as it sat pierside. Hundreds of Navy and civilian firefighters worked inside the vessel as helicopters flew through Sunday evening and into Monday morning to dump buckets of water on the ship. The blaze was finally extinguished only after a grueling four-day battle to contain it ended on July 16th. Dozens of sailors and civilians were injured while fighting the firestorm, which reached temperatures of 1,000 degrees. The flight deck of the Bonhomme Richard was receiving upgrades at the time so it could handle a contingent of F-35B aircraft. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday later said 11 of the ship's 14 decks had been damaged, according to then-defense news reporter David Larder. Um, uh, we, had knew, we knew that this was sort of coming down the pipe. We, 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 uh, we had heard about the potential that there was going to be some sort of uh, uh, charges against somebody, um, but this news broke uh, within the last week from whenever you hear this episode. Um, and I believe they've even released the name of the sailor uh, who is charged with with this uh, potential arson. Um, someone's got to pay the bill, right? Three billion bucks. Uh, what 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 strikes me is, um, you know, uh, I, I read on another one. Um, this is just the fourth ship the Navy has been forced to retire from fleet due to damage since 2000, and the second lost when intentionally set fire. Um, but you know, you knew that something was going to happen, right? That, that this couldn't have just been um, an accident, right? There are, I, I'm not a Navy guy. The Navy's like a whole different world, but I do know from speaking with people, I mean, fire on a ship is bad, right? So there are a lot of controls in place to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then if it does happen, that it's contained mm -hmm. so that this type of damage doesn't happen. So it, you, you almost had to know that it was intentional in some way that somebody intentionally did this, um, and to do it for the reasons that I'm kind of reading the guy did it, you know, like, I mean, that's one way to do it, man, but you're gonna, you're gonna pay the piper on this one. That is, uh, UCMJ is not kind to those sorts of actions. Oh, sure. have you watched JAG? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you bring up a good point. And I, and I want to ask our audience, we recently on the Veterans Breakfast Club's online events, honored the sailors that were lost back in 1967 on the USS Forrestal. There was a fire that started on the top of that vessel when a missile misfired and hit actually John McCain's fighter jet. Um, this set off a series of explosions when 1,000-pound, 500-pound bombs were exploding on the deck. Um, 100 and, I believe 67 lives were lost during that fire, and a lot of things changed for the Navy whenever after that had happened. Um, now every, every sailor is, is trained to fight fires. Uh, and on that program, which I ask people, go to our YouTube page, 
uh, check out Veterans Breakfast Club on YouTube. Find the USS Forrestal. There's a lot of really great information on there. We had a veteran on from the USS Forrestal that was there during the, that fire in 67. Uh, we also had a, a commander on, uh, a recent post 9-11 vet who wrote his thesis on USS Forrestal. Um, so if you, and we talked about the Bonham Richard because that commander actually served on the Bonham Richard before this fire um, last year. So uh, I, I asked our audience, check out that that, that interview uh, that VBC did. Uh, it's got a lot of really interesting information about uh, fires on naval vessels, a lot of history about that, and a lot of how things changed since the forest stall. I just keep wondering, you know, like Brian said, I mean, fire on a ship is bad. There's no question about that. But I mean, the fact that it was docked, I can't help but wondering, like, if this had happened while it was not docked, like in the middle of the sea somewhere, and they hadn't had like the extra civilian firefighters to come in, I just keep thinking about how much worse this potentially could have been, because they had that, you know, extra support from the fire crews, probably like it right there in San Diego, I just can't help thinking about how much worse this could have been. And two, I wonder, I don't know a whole lot about, you know, the military and how it works from like a disciplinary standpoint but like obviously he's going to face charges within the navy but then i wonder would there be charges like outside of that um or would it just be like within you know within the navy decide like bring up the charges and going through the court system that way because i wonder if since it was docked at a pier if there you know could be other charges especially since mm. you know there were injuries to civilians that's a great point. Um, and if if you're listening, or if Ryan, do you know? Uh, I do know there are certain cases where um, you, you know you can kind of be be charged both civilly or criminally. Um, but in most cases, uh, because you're a military service member, you you do fall under the UCMJ, and that's wherever you go, no matter no matter what you do. And and in most cases, uh, especially outside the U.S., that's a protection for the for the service member as well. That like they can't be if this were to happen in Thailand, they can't be put in prison in Thailand, right? That mm -hmm. they they fall under the jurisdiction of the military, but. Um, I think with something as extreme as this, there may be a case, at least maybe even just civilly, that people that, you know, the, the port or the pier could could charge for damages or, or something like that. But I think that's that's probably rare, but I'm not a, you know, I'm not a legal expert, but there probably is a case for that. <laughs> and you bring up a good point, Catherine, before we move on to our next headline, is that it's potential that it would not have been worse out to sea. It probably would have been better because, because the Bonham Richard was docked, actually some of its firefighting systems were turned off. And the fire was way worse because those systems were not operating. There wasn't somebody there to push the button and and shut all the doors and, and contain. Um, they were they were fighting it for so long because it got out of control, and there wasn't anybody there to really uh, stop it at, at the onset. Whereas out to sea, uh, they're they're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week to make sure that if anything does go wrong, they're there to to stop it. Um, and usually, uh, for our listeners, if you look up the history on these fires, a lot of ships are, are there to help assist as well. Like even with the Forestall, a lot of ships came up alongside the Forestall and were spraying it um, to try to put out that fire. That one was uh, arguably worse, mainly because, you know, there was munitions on board that were exploding. Moving on to the next headline, uh, Ryan, did you want to take this one? Uh, yeah. So uh, on the Warhorse... Uh... Dot org. Uh, there was an article, uh, nearly all VA claims for Gulf War illness improperly denied. Uh, so this came out in, in May. So a little, a little bit, of, a little bit ago, but I thought it was, it was interesting with everything that we're, you know, that we're dealing with now, VA benefits, all these types of things, Agent Orange, you know, Vietnam veterans fought this battle with Agent Orange. Um, 
uh, post 9-11 veterans are, are going through this right now with burn pit registries and, and things like that. But um, they found that like over 80% of, of um, claims for Gulf War illness, uh, so, you know, since over the past 30 years um, have been denied, mostly in, improperly. Six, over 650,000 U.S. service members were deployed uh, to Iraq for the Gulf War uh, and annexation of Kuwait. Um, uh, the combat was brief, just 42 days, but the fallout has been unending. Nearly 44% uh, came home with a variety of serious medical problems, including several mysterious ailments that became collectively known as Gulf War illness, according to a 2016 VA study. So I think what, what's interesting about this is, um, you know, there, there was a lot of things that couldn't be pinned to one thing, right? It, uh, these presumptive conditions that have now been identified with Agent Orange, all these different types of cancers. If you show up to a, to a VA hospital and file a claim and you have a certain type of cancer and you can show that you were exposed to Agent Orange, it's automatic. It just happens. They say you have this type of cancer, you were exposed to Agent Orange, we give you uh, this sort of disability. With, with Gulf War uh, illness, it was, it was a little bit more vague. It wasn't quite like cancer. It was like skin rashes, headaches, fatigue, strange things. And a lot of these things could kind of be, you know, explained away. It could be anything, right? Um, but what they've seen is, I mean, 44% is a pretty large number. All of the different environmental um, ex, uh, exposures that you had, the burning oil, um, all these all these different sorts of things, um, the uh, uh, exposure to, you know, uranium depleted rounds, like all those types of things. Um, uh, caused a, a whole host of, of health issues. And I think it's uh, important to, to, to recognize this and then uh, hopefully make some movement for, for change because these, these men and women who, who served over there, you know, they didn't, they didn't choose to get these types of ailments. Um, they, they chose and they volunteered to, to serve their country and they went over there and then they, they come back and, you know, it's part of our duty as, um, as a country and, and the VA to provide, you know, services uh, when, these types of injuries and, and ailments come up because that's the that's the cost of war, right? So I think it I think that's that's really interesting, and I hope it, it continues to move along the right track and, and get the sort of presumptive conditions that should be, um, you know, applied for with uh, these types of ailments. I think forty four percent is that what you said? Like that's too much to be a coincidence where you can just brush it off as like, oh, it has to be. You know, forty four percent of people can't all have the same environmental, you know, factors when they come home that would result in this. There's one thing that they all have in common, which is their service. And I, you know, a lot of people could probably poke a lot of holes into what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because I know I'm not the only person that feels this way. Veterans literally volunteer to go and die for our country. Like worst case scenario, they know that their life could end in service to their country. And if they make it home, we should be like rolling out the red carpet for them. They need VA benefits. They need housing. They need food. They need help with their families. Like anything that they need, the, the government or whoever should find a way to get it to them. And I know there are so many nonprofits, especially here in like the Ohio Valley where I work, so many organizations that fight every day to get these veterans what they need. But the fact that it seems like they're trying to be like, oh no, this is just a coincidence. We're not going to help you out. I find it appalling. Like they should get whatever they need. No questions asked, really. Yeah. And the, the really sad part of it, I mean, it's been 30 years since the Gulf War, right? And with a lot of these Vietnam vets and their exposure to Agent Orange, many of them died before they got any sort of benefits. And that's, you know, 
that could very likely happen to, you know, some of these uh, Gulf War veterans, right? They, they will die um, before they get any actual real relief or compensation um, for something that was related to their service. And it's not even the compensation too. like, think about it, all this stuff, like skin rashes and stuff and all that. And like even more serious health problems, like with Agent Orange, like that's pain. Like that's causing their lives physical issues. They could be living with pain or discomfort every day. It's just, it's not, I don't think it's fair. I really don't. Yeah. I agree with that. And, and, you know, it, it's interesting hearing veterans uh, talk about the VA over the last year. In some, in some circles, I hear a lot of praise for the VA. The VA's changed a lot since Vietnam. They weren't prepared for the veterans coming back, what they were dealing with, um, that they have uh, changed a lot over the last, you know, three, four decades and have gotten a lot better. Um, but in some instances like this with, with Gulf War illness or with the burn pits, which we'll hear about shortly, um, those are still things that they're still getting research on or they're still trying to understand or they're still trying to figure out like, what are, what are our responsibilities? There's a lot of bureaucracy, that horrible word um, that sort of gums up the works uh, as, as someone comes back and says, hey, I'm dealing with this. It's because of this. And they can say, is it, you know? Um, I don't know, Ryan, I, don't know if I ask you to, to speak to that a bit in like why this relationship between the VA and the veterans and how that has shifted over the last, you know, uh, four decades. The, the VBA, the Veterans Benefit Administration, has a responsibility to, you know, both the veteran and also, right, the taxpayer, the people who fund these sorts of things. So, you know, they have to, you know, on the one hand, make sure the veteran is taken care of, but also to make sure that, you know, that people are not improperly receiving benefits at, at the cost of right at the cost of the taxpayer um, because you know unfortunately like those sort of things like would happen um, does it take too long yeah yeah it definitely it definitely takes too long but they just like everything kind of in the government um, they're they have to make sure that this is you know 100 percent um, the, the cause and uh, you know how we're going to do that and the, the unfortunate part is like, even after a decision has been made, the implementation of that decision can even take a long time because of, of the bureaucracy. But I don't doubt um, at all that, you know, the VA cares for its veterans and wants to make these things better. But totally. on, a, on a lot of, and a lot of these times when a, when a person is dealing with it, their hands are kind of tied, right? The, the policy does not state or the procedures that we have do not state that, that, we, can, that we can do this for you at this time. Um, they can help them with the symptoms and, and diagnosing them. But the, the compensation side of it, um, which is a disability claim, um, always takes longer. It takes long. It, it can take a long time, even if you have, you know, the proper evidence and everything that, that you need. Um, but the good news is, is that, you know, they're still going to be cared for for the for the symptoms of the of the conditions that they have. And this is the thing that we always hear about with with in, through Congress, like them updating the VA and then they're always trying to get these sort of amendments in to be able to give compensation for the ailments that they have. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. And the, the VA has come such a long way in um, the treatments that they provide, the approach that they take to health, um, the holistic approach that they're taking with, with whole health and the types of services that they offer that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, these, these types of things, you know, you would never see happening at a VA, um, but they've have definitely made a lot of changes, you know, yoga, acupuncture, non-traditional treatments, um, you know, those, those sorts of things, in addition to the regular primary health sort of things that they do. So they've taken a, a much, uh, I think, more holistic approach to a veteran's health, which I think is is a good thing. Do you want to talk about the burn pit article that, that we've come across as well? This sort of relates. 
Yes. Yeah, it does. So Military Times reports uh, for the first time, some burn pit victims will get presumptive status for disability benefits. So we just talked about presumptive status um, with Agent Orange and presumptive status is, is exactly what it sounds like. If you have these conditions and you can and you can uh, show your exposure to burn pits, you can uh, receive an automatic, you know, service-connected disability, which which is important. So, veterans exposed to harmful burn pit smoke while serving in certain overseas war zones will, for the first time, get presumptive disability benefit status under a new announcement from the VA on Monday. So, um, this move comes after years of lobbying from veteran advocates and months of legislative pressure from Capitol Hill on the issue. In a statement, VA Secretary Dennis McDonough called the move the right decision to recognize the sacrifice of veterans. So we're, we're talking about um, when you're in an austere environment uh, overseas, Iraq, Afghanistan mainly, um, and you're in a place where you don't have regular, you know, sewage or, or garbage treatment um, that, you know, you, you burn it. Um, and in some cases, both, both human waste and, and physical waste. And, um, you know, I think we can all agree that's not good to, to, to breathe in. No, it releases uh, a lot of carcinogens. Quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I was I was deployed to a few areas where where that was going on. Um, it is uh, it is not a pleasant experience. It is not nice. Um, so I'm glad to see that 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 has kind of moved in the in the right direction. And I think overall, over you know since Vietnam, we uh, and what those guys have done for us in creating so many of these advocacy groups um, that do this type of stuff, they have done uh, my generation of veterans. Uh, have and by and large been had access to so many more resources and had so much more support than even guys in the Gulf War uh, got, you know, you know, 10, 20 years, 30 years ago. And are still trying to get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, uh, I'm very lucky to be a post 9-11 veteran, I think. And I applaud all those organizations that are, you know, fighting for this. But I think, you know, and my I guess I got to roll back my earlier rant about benefits because I, you know, I know that the VA cares and there's so many people out there that care, but I've just, you know, seen so many stories of people just like fighting for so long to get benefits. And I think that's maybe the core of the problem and the core of the frustration is there needs to be like a quicker, you know, a a quicker turnaround timetable maybe. And I don't know what that takes, but like, you know, we're reading this article and it says that all these other groups had to lobby for years. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it, and, you know, I am looking at it at, at this at the outside and I acknowledge that, but it just doesn't seem to me that this should be something that should take years to get a decision to get help. No, I, th- yeah, I think, Catherine, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think you need to roll back anything. I think what you said is absolutely <laughs> true. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I was just pointing out that the, we, we have been uh, the beneficiary of a lot of hard work, and there are still people that fall through the cracks. Um, and we, my generation of veterans, and, and many generations of veterans, owe a lot to the Vietnam veterans who came home, and despite their, despite the reception that they got, um, you know, did so much to create uh, so many of these things um, to help veterans, and by, by and large, but yeah, there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to making sure that veterans don't fall through the cracks. And I was saying, including the vet center that you that you work at, we had that in a previous episode that that was started yeah. by the Vietnam vets. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So- I know a group of uh, Vietnam veterans here in the Ohio Valley. They call themselves the Vietnam Veteran Support Group, and they, 
you know, speaking of helping other veterans, they created a support group specifically for veterans who maybe weren't comfortable going to like the VA vet center or the VA for help, where they just literally sit there and support each other with like past trauma or, you know, some of them maybe have like PTSD a little bit and things like that. And they, you know, they literally lean on one another. And I was talking to a veteran two weeks ago as part of a veteran's voices who said like once you serve your country like that sometimes service is the way of life he, he explained it to me that like there's always that like nagging in the back of his head like you need to do more you need to do more for your country for your fellow veterans and that like propelled for him so I guess for all the you know all the veterans that continue to fight for you know whether it be VA coverage or, or better benefits for them or things like that they probably have that little nagging in there that says you need to do more for uh you know, for your fellow fellow veterans. Yeah, um, vet, yeah, like like Sean mentioned, vet centers were founded by Vietnam vets um, who may have felt like they weren't getting the support they needed at VA hospitals. They got together, started doing, you know, therapeutic groups among themselves. It was eventually, you know, formalized and made part of the VA. And now we have all, you know, uh, licensed clinicians who, who provide, you know, counseling free of charge uh, to war zone veterans and their families in a, in a in a place where, you know, that's out in their community. And it's, it's a great program. I'm very happy to be a part of it. But yeah, that that all started because of, of Vietnam vets. Well, moving on to uh, I maybe say a lighter note, uh, Fast and the Furious, we have tanks. Uh, there's something called a rip saw that Catherine has found. Catherine, do you want to take this very interesting and, and macho i'm gonna say macho because it's just like boys and toys really <laughs> hey, <laughs> wait, wait a minute wait a minute i'm a girl and i think this would be a fun quote-unquote toy okay <laughs> i want to see you driving down the highway to work in your ripsaw <laughs> can you imagine i would do that in a heartbeat if i was given the chance you know driving Give down i-70 into wheeling and this people would be like what the heck <laughs> But basically, I hope we can show a picture of this because it literally looks like something out of Fast and Furious for people that watch this. So it looks so futuristic, and that's basically what the article says. There are these new photos that were published to um, DVID, the Defense Visual Information Distribution System. It's called a Ripsaw M5 robotic combat vehicle. It has army green paint, and it was these photos were taken during testing at Fort Dix in New Jersey, and I guess this happened in late June, so a little bit ago. Um, but apparently the Army is considering this ripsaw as part of what's called the Robotic Combat Vehicle Medium Program. So that was all news to me. I didn't know that this kind of technology um, was being developed. I mean, it does look like straight out of a movie, and the article acknowledges that kind of like, stripped down versions of this have been in a, a bunch of action movies, which I didn't know, um, you know, G.I. Joe Retaliation, which according to this article didn't get rave reviews, and um, Fast and Furious 8, for those of you who are a fan of the franchise. So like, I I mean, I can see the, the practical purpose of this, and I don't 100% understand how it works. I'm, just, I'm sure somebody has to drive it somewhere, but like, I just, the fact of seeing this kind of roll down, you know, the road somewhere is a little bit comical. And it's, this is like a, a mini version of a tank. These things fly and, and, you know, you see it in the Fast and the Furious movie and it's like blowing through icebergs and stuff yeah. like that. Um, you know, it, it, this thing's maneuverable. So who knows if we'll ever go back to some level of ground war, but if you have something as maneuverable and, and quick as this, um, 
I think you have the upper hand in a way, Ryan. There, there, there is going to be hundreds of teenagers, right, in, in all across the United States, strapped into their PS5, kicking our next enemy's butt by remote-controlled tanks across the, you know, the paths of, you know, all over the world. They're just going to be controlling. We're, we're just going to hire them on there. We're going to be like, look, kid, we'll pay for your college, and we'll, you know, we'll. Well, you know, the parents will have to sign a waiver and they'll just be like, look, we don't, we don't want, we don't want Ryan. He's, he's mid thirties. He doesn't, he doesn't have the thumbs like you kids got, right? Get these kids on the PS5 and go win us a war. They're just going to be airdropping these things. They're going to air, airmail this stuff to our enemy next day. And it's just going to drop out. They're going to land and kids going to fire up his PS5 and start rolling back our next enemy it's not even gonna should be have bought stock in playstation <laughs> we should get sony as a sponsor of, of the, the well this kind of reminds me of have you guys heard of like the esports movement that's going on now where like there's this whole like esports thing where it's basically mm. like competitive video gaming we yeah. did talk and about these, that on the scuttlebutt yeah and you see these competition rooms right and there's all these like most of them are you know teens that are really into it and young adults so they're all in this room with like all these monitors everywhere. And Ryan, when you said that, I just had this like vision of some future like army command room where it's like this giant wall of big HD, HD TVs and everybody's just there in, in uniform with these those big like head controller on with the microphones and they're just like, you know, fast and furious on their thumbs. Yeah, <laughs> just I mean, like controlling a whole fleet of, fleet of robotic tanks like in some other country. They're gonna they're gonna have to take breaks to hand out juice boxes and orange slices at these command posts because that's who's gonna be winning these wars, right? They're gonna be just kids who have just been playing video games or all just destroying the next enemies of the United States. So watch out because well, and not to be outdone, the Navy has also they have invented something. If we ever do get back to some level of of ground war. Uh, a Navy here. engineer has developed a new non-lethal device designed to render targets incapable of speech by turning their own voice against them, according to a new patent application. This is reported by Task and Purpose. Uh, invented by Christopher A. Brown of the Naval Surface Warfare Center, the so-called Acoustic Hailing and Disruption, A-H-A-D, A-HAD, I guess, system is elegant in its simplicity. We'll pop up a picture of this. The device records incoming voices amplifies them and plays them back in two distinct sounds one nearly simultaneously with the original speech and one on an ever so slight delay uh, the result is what's called delayed auditory feedback which refers to the delay between speech and hearing one's own voice normally the human body is used to the phenomenon but when deployed at the right interval by the device the delayed auditory feedback quote alters the speaker's normal perception of their own voice and confuses the speaker not unlike say the disorienting experience of talk trying to talk over over the phone while someone else is trying to talk to you. I mean, I think we've all experienced this now with Zoom. Well, they've patented this with the Navy now. Uh, though, Catherine, you've had some experience with something similar to this, to this in, in the newsroom, right? Yeah. So let me like, you know, fully acknowledge that like news anchor and military weapons have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But I know what that's like to hear your voice back constantly. So in the news, we wear a little earpiece. It's molded to like, imagine the size of the inside of your ear. It's called an IFP, which stands for <clears throat> internal feedback, right? So that's what, when we're on the news, we can hear like other stories and other reporters, but like the downfall of it is you also hear yourself. So if I'm in the studio, I'm hearing myself in real time. So it's not a big deal. But if I'm out in the field, you know, away from the studio, sometimes there's a delay. 
And it's so weird to be saying one thing and then hearing in your ear yourself, like maybe five to 10 seconds previously. So it's, it's, so you're listening to yourself and then it's a little bit distorted because obviously, you know, your voice doesn't sound the same. It'd be like talking over a telephone. Your voice doesn't sound the same over a telephone, but like just that little bit, you kind of have to train yourself to block it out. So if you didn't know this was coming and you're hearing yourself at like a different pitch or things like that, you're going to your immediate reaction would probably be a pause and be like, what is that? And, you know, it would be distorted. So I can see like, just from my own experience of hearing myself every day, like where that would be awful to listen to if you had to hear yourself in like a different tone or different pitch. And it sounded like you were speaking in rounds. <laughs> I need a non-lethal, non-weaponized, non-military version of this for my one and a half year old. So when then she starts screaming, I can be like, beep, and she's just like, wait a minute. No, That's we all know the kids would just start screaming louder to be probably heard. probably true. <laughs> it would backfire on me, definitely. Um, Ryan, what are your thoughts on this auditory weapon, non-lethal weapon? Um, sounds great. Uh, I, I don't have any you know, experience with that, but I can imagine how disorienting it would be. Um, I have to go through that on a, on a regular basis when my wife has to repeat herself to me like three or four times. So yes, it's very, it's very disorienting because I'm a bad listener. <laughs> I hear you. And that's pun intended. Um, Where are they going to use this? Is like I my would other assume like, you know, since this thing can, really say. since I, I'm guessing like, say you were in a battle in, in a, in a city or town and you are, I would assume close enough to hear the voices of enemy combatants, you could direct this device at them. And it, it's so precise that it'll pick up only the guy talking and reverb it back to him. So it's not going to pick up like a platoon. Um, so your, your objective is to disrupt him giving commands to his soldiers. Um, oh, so so, you stop him. It's not so much to stop them from hearing things. It's to stop them from telling people things. Yeah. So yeah, okay. I, I can't tell you where Either to go. Either way, that would be talk. awful. That would yeah. be awful. I don't, <laughs> I don't envy the people like when they have to test this on somebody, like I don't envy that person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and last for, uh, in our tech portion here, task and purpose, uh, also, uh, had a little fun with, uh, a reporter who inaccurately reported that the new Russian jet fighter, which has a really cool name coming from a chess advocate like myself, the, and I'm probably mispronouncing is the Sukhoi checkmate is the new Soviet Russian fighter jet. The checkmate? That's a cool name. Um, no, it cannot travel twice the speed of light, uh, which was somewhere reported. I won't mention where, but you can look it up. Uh, and the funny thing was, is that the, the reporter said this, but then everybody kind of went along with it and thought, hey, yeah, I guess it can travel twice the speed of light, um, which is impossible. We don't live in Star Wars or Star Trek. You can't hit warp speed in your, in your fighter jet. Um, but this is a very interesting, and me being a big fan of fighter jets in general, F-18, F-35, F-22s, they just all look cool. If you look up the Checkmate, um, it's a very cool looking fighter, uh, but it can travel twice the speed of sound. But that's something that's sort of been around for a while. It's not new news. It's not like they've in invented something that we didn't have before, um, but the Checkmate supposedly can do this. Yeah, the Associated Press reported that the jet can fly at 1.8 to two times the speed of sound, which is pretty cool. Pretty fast. That's fast. That's that's kick the tires and light the fires fast. They're going to really be able to buzz a tower. 
with that jet <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> that is i mean what's interesting about it, it looks i mean it looks a lot like an f-22 which is mm -hmm. the you know the most uh recent um aerial superiority fighter that the united states has and that's that's what happens right i mean when these when people like uh peers who have the ability um like china or russia um, the U S is normally leading that it's a very long process to come up with these things. And mm -hmm. they, have to, they keep pace with each other about, um, you know, they had the MiG 29s, we had the F 15s, uh, you know, et cetera, those sorts of things. So, um, you, you, you only knew it was a matter of time before they came out with a stealth fighter, which is what the F 22 Raptor is that we have. Yeah. And the F-35, uh, what I think might actually be a step beyond the F-22. They've stopped production of the F-22 and they said, we're going to jump to the F-35. Um, yeah, I think they're supposed to have different roles. Um, earlier on, the, the F-35 uh, was called the Joint Strike Fighter, so it was made to be kind of a air and ground, you know, uh, taking kind of the role of like an F-16, um, where the F-15 was primarily an air superiority fighter. Right. F-16s were supposed to be dual role, and the F-35 was, was supposed to kind of take over that, but then they have a you know, a, a vertical takeoff variant. And yeah, the Marines that. wanted something because the Marines always want something. <laughs> Those Marines. Yeah, so I, th I think, yeah, both really cool planes. But uh, yeah, checkmate. There, I think there's a lot of a lot of things implied with the name of that uh, mm -hmm. of that fighter. But keep dreaming, Vlad. Keep, keep dreaming, Vlad. <laughs> um, and one bit of a uh, small article that I'll direct our audience to is uh, from airforcemag.com. Um, this is what's interesting about the article. Uh, the problem is, is that the F-35 is so advanced that they can't put it up into training against something that is as advanced as it. So they're trying to figure out ways to like get their pilots into training on the F-35 against something that could be like a, a peer enemy. Um, mm -hmm. So they've, they're looking at what's called uh, the Air Force's first application of low-cost attritable aircraft systems, LCAAS, uh, will likely be as stealth, stealthy adversaries for fifth-generation fighters. Um, this is sort of a, a toe in the water that they are trying to develop a, a, a training system um, that will help the pilots be able to go up against something that's as advanced as the F-35. That brings us to our final article of the day here. Uh, Catherine, do you want to talk to us a bit about uh, the exercises that are happening in Naples? Yeah, so somebody, we got to play explain this to the civilian here, okay? That's going to be our new game for the scuttlebutt. So as I always thought, and I know I'm probably wrong, which is fine. That's, you know, why we're here to learn and teach other people. But I always thought that like a military exercise was kind of like, you know, a drill, a training, because obviously you have to physically, you know, move things and practice things and, you know, train right? Exercise. So then I saw this article where in Naples, a U.S. naval and amphibious exercise, it's billed as the largest of its, its kind in 40 years. It's a globe-spanning effort. And then, you know, it, they say it aims to send a message to Russia and China. But so I thought, you know, exercises were just for our own purposes. But now we're, you know, sending a message to Russia and China by doing this like large scale exercise. Um, they say it's similar to, you know, Cold War exercises. But I mean, you know, I thought I thought exercises were supposed to be just like a, you know, a, a drill kind of a thing. But now we're, you know, we're are we warning other countries with this? Like what, you know, am I wrong in my definition of what a military exercise was? 
I think, uh, yeah, you hit the you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the the exercise is um, uh, an attempt to to train. I think the uh, what they're talking about here, the, these exercises always have like political implications, especially when they happen like close to other people. So it may be um, sending a message to them, but that's that's not its direct influence. It's to train to be able to to do those things. You have to imagine like the that that exercise happening like we have spent the last 20 plus years in a counterinsurgency sort of fight right down on the ground in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Central Africa, those sorts of places like doing things differently. And over the past few years, the military has been making this change from counterinsurgency and this nation building type of thing to like, what if we were to fight someone who was near to us in power? We call them near peers. So we haven't practiced that in a long time. And 20 years of doing counterinsurgency is a long time. You, you could have joined in the military and retired before you ever had to do anything other than counterinsurgency, right? So we have to kind of retrain ourselves to, to this type of near peer fight and the amount of just logistics and communications that it would take to do this sort of thing, to answer a threat in Europe and then also East Asia or something like that would, well, is something that, that, that you know, obviously they're, that they're trying to practice here. And I think a secondary effect is that, yeah, I guess it, it does send a message to them, but it's, it's, I think its primary objective is to make sure that we can do it, to, to do the training, to, to try to do something like this, and then to go back and find out where we messed up and where we could get better um, to make sure that we, that we can do that sort of thing. But yeah, it's, it sounds big. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was looking at this too. I should have included it in my initial like question about it, but 17 time zones, 36 yeah. ships, 50 uh, virtual units, military, civilian, and contract personnel. I mean, it, it's like, it's massive. It sounds yeah. like, and I guess maybe for me, like uh, having never been in the military, like my mind scope wasn't thinking that big. I was, you know, thinking like a smaller exercise, but I mean, I guess that would make sense because, you know, if we ever actually had to did, to respond to something like that, how would we know what to do, what to do if we didn't practice? I guess it's like with any other mm -hmm. job, you got to practice what you're doing, you know? What I find really interesting um, is that in the article, like these sort of exercises, um, usually have something cool, like a name, like Operation Sabretooth, right? We're going to practice, you know, something like that. Like, we're going to practice, what if a war broke out in Scandinavia? How would we do that, right? It it's always has some, this one in the article is just called Large Scale Exercise 2021. Like, that's it. Like, come on, man. You got also, they there's a room it. full of officers and you can't come up with a better name than that. Somebody's got to have something, you know, Operation Razorback, because I went to the University of Arkansas or I don't know, whatever, you know. <laughs> There we go. Ryan's going to name it. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like they're dating it like the Olympics, like, you know, large scale exercise 2021, you know, yeah. that's so we have like, you know, we know whenever this happened. I mean, this involves six Naval and Marine Corps component commands, five U.S. fleets and three Marine expeditionary forces. Um, coordinating all of that across, what was it, 17 different time zones yeah. is a huge undertaking. And, and I, I, I think of it as like less of like sending a message as, as much as it is like, hey, in case you forgot, um, <laughs> we're here, we kind of know what we're doing, um, right. you know, or, or we know how to, to engage in these other ways as well. Like, you know, yeah, we've been involved in this over here for some time, um, but we also have this and, you know, in case you want to get rowdy, um, <laughs> uh, that's sort of my take on it. I obviously uh, 
fear any sort of large engagement and hope that we don't have to go towards any bit of that. But I do appreciate, I guess, that the, the military is willing to go out there and say, hey, we have these capabilities and we know how to use them. Um, I think that's sort of sort of the message. And, and even in the article, I think it says, you know, China, Russia, they might even completely ignore and don't even know that this happened. Um, but, uh, you know, it's good to know that people are out there making sure all these systems are, are running and, and in sync um, because should the proverbial uh, crap hit the fan, um, you know, we want guys that, that know what they're doing uh, in charge. Yeah. And you don't want to, you don't want a Marine expeditionary force coming at you. That's for sure. Because they, Marines are just, they're just angry, right. All the time. They're just like, there's like this, you know, I think in uh, the, the show, um, Generation Kill explained it the best, right? When he talks about what Marines are, he's like, they're, we're an angry dog that America keeps in its cage and just, you know, just abuses it and, and, and just doesn't feed it. And then it's so hungry and angry when it comes out, it just attacks everything, right? Like that's, that's what Marine, I mean, that's what Marines are great for. And we love them for it. They're the devil dogs. Go get them. You don't want those guys showing up on your doorstep. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I do want to uh, make mention of one more article uh, that I just want to direct our audience to. Uh, this is on task and purpose, and uh, it is titled An Afghan Interpreter Who Became an American Soldier Has One Final Mission, Saving His Family. Um, I don't need to read through the article for our audience. I want them to go and read it themselves. It's a really interesting story of, uh, of this Afghan interpreter who came to the U.S., uh, enlisted, and then went back to Afghanistan, is now in the fight to save his family over there. There's a lot going on as the Afghan war draws down. Um, and we will be talking about interpreters later on in this season. Um, I'm looking forward to that discussion. Please take a look at that article, uh, read his story. Um, it's, it's very interesting and, and very heartfelt. Um, and uh, I guess as a bonus, bonus article, uh, Ryan, you came across a TikTok uh, that was pretty funny. We'll show some clips here, but can you explain what this is? This guy, obviously in the in the tenth tenth Mountain Division, I, I think his name is uh, Chandler Hartford, and he just comes out with these dad jokes, which you know, as a as a relatively new dad, um, I just appreciate so much. I I love dad jokes. You know, he tells the joke, it's terrible, and then him and his buddies just do this laugh. Bo, hey, Bo. Hey, first of all, I got a question for you. Hey, what's up? What do you call a deer with no eyes? I don't know. I have no idea. Ah, 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 ah. Hey, Bo, hey, Bo. Hey, yeah. Uh, what do you call an egg on a sandy beach? San Diego. Hey, guys, hey, guys. Why can't your ear be 12 inches long? Because then it'd be a foot. What? Hey, Bo. What are you doing? I don't know. Sorry. Start pushing. All of them. Right now. See, it's funny. Hey. Um, I think we need to give an ode to the dad joke because I feel like this is a category of humor that is vastly (laughs) underappreciated. I mean, just even just for like a little groan or like a little laugh, like, come on, they're always funny, right? Dad, you guys need to, you know, your dads, you should up your dad joke game here. <laughs> yeah. So when uh, my my father was uh, was home recently and he was sitting in the kitchen with me and my sister and we had this bag of quinoa chips, right? And my dad takes one out and me and my sister saying, he goes, what's a quinoa chip? And me and my sister just immediately go, it's a chip made out of quinoa. And I'm like, that's the life cycle of a dad joke, right? He's come all the way back, but now we're getting him with him, right? I mean, my dad existed on dad jokes. It was like his whole thing. You know, he would always have like just some silly dad joke. So it's very much a part of my, 
my personality. And uh, I just really enjoyed getting a zinger on them. I'm That's jealous great. of dad. Like, why can't we have mom jokes? Because moms Maybe. are great at everything. That's true. Yeah, but why can't we be funny too? Dad Come jokes on, are inherently man. not funny. That's what makes them funny. <laughs> I think they're funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole thing. It's a dad trying to be funny and failing miserably at it. Kids but I actually think they're funny. <laughs> You are, you are one of the few, the proud. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but. <laughs> well, thank, our, thank you to our audience for joining us for another Scuttlebutt. It was all about the Scuttlebutt. If you come across any articles or headlines that you would like us to report on, please send them on to us. We will be happy to, to talk about them here on the podcast. Um, thank you guys for a fun episode. Uh, we got to plan a, a, another couple of these. Thanks for having us. Uh, I always enjoy yeah. the scuttlebutt. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for being here today. It was really fun to have you. And, and, um, like I said, you got moms don't need dad jokes. Moms are great at everything. Uh, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your support. And, uh, I can't <laughs> wait for the, can't wait for the next one. Thank Thanks for sometimes laughing at my terrible jokes. I appreciate that. <laughs> He always, always. I promise you always laugh at your jokes. Also, I think we need another uh, hashtag Ryan's rant so we can have a viral TikTok, TikTok moment. <laughs> we, we just posted one last week, a Ryan rants of his army combat uh, training. Um, look it up. It's fantastic. Uh, and also look up on the Veterans Breakfast Club TikTok for our media producer, Ellie, who did a three minute short of Ryan's rant uh, that I busted a gut at. It was fantastic. Um, and also, Catherine, if you ever have a Catherine rant you would like to get out, this is a great platform for it. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I'll try to try to think of one because I'm sure they're, they're in there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see you all next week on another episode of The Scuttlebutt. Thank you all for joining us. I want to thank Millerstown Pick Apart for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. For Millerstown's hours, direction, inventory, and pricing, go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D.com. Thank you so much, Millerstown, and uh, we'll see you on the next Scuttlebutt.